challenges the church has faced in recent years has been a struggle to regain a robust attitude toward the biblical doctrine of future bodily resurrection. We've made some, some, some substantial advances, but there's still a lot of work to do. In my own experience, there are plenty of folks in the pews and some maybe even in the pulpits who believe in future resurrection of the body, but if you press them and they had to tell you what that meant, there might be some struggle to do that. Many of these brothers and sisters happily affirm the words of the creed every week, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But often we are more unclear on what that means and why it matters. So we need to do some thinking about future bodily resurrection. We need to think about how it shapes our identity. We need to think about how that identity frames our ethics, our behavior, and even holiness. Now, before we get to the more specific question of bodily resurrection and Christian identity, we need to be sure we're clear on what we mean when we talk about the future resurrection of the body. At its most basic, the doctrine of the resurrection means that the physical bodies of people who belong to Jesus will literally be raised from the dead, from the grave, when Jesus returns. They'll be physical, touchable, tangible bodies, just like they are now. But they'll be different. They won't be able to die. I often invite people to imagine a human body set free from the frailties we commonly associate with body embodied life. Imagine a body with bones that don't break, hearts that don't fail, eyes that never go blind, ears that never go deaf. Imagine a physical body free from those things and you'll be heading in the right direction for imagining the resurrection. It's helpful to think of the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection is a model, a prototype for the resurrection of believers. When Jesus was raised on Easter morning, he was raised bodily from the dead. When the disciples entered the tomb, Jesus' body was gone. When they found Jesus' living body, they also found that he could be touched and that he was ready for breakfast. The very body that was crucified on Friday is the same body that was raised on Sunday. So all the time that we affirm, we affirm all that, we also affirm that Jesus' physical body went through some changes as well. All of a sudden, his physical body can enter into a room with locked doors and locked windows. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the resurrected body of Jesus can never die again. So he's not merely resuscitated to the sort of bodily life we experience now. He's, been, he's not merely been brought back from the dead, as we might say of someone who was brought back to life in an emergency room. No, Jesus came through death and out the other side, as one theologian likes to say. So Jesus models for us what a human body looks like when it's set free from death, really set free from the grave. Now one important question that arises from the hope for future bodily resurrection has to do with the way resurrection helps to define Christian identity. When we start talking about group identity, the key category becomes that of distinction. And the key question is, what distinguishes us as a group from other people in other groups? What makes us, us? And what makes them, them? Now, if we take that question and be begin to read the major resurrection passages in the New Testament, especially in Paul, we discover that resurrection is seen as something that distinguishes the early followers of Jesus from the rest of the pagan world. A couple of passages in Paul will help us see that. In Philippians 3, 17 to 21, Paul tells us about a certain group of people. Doesn't tell us who they are, but he does tell us what he expects about their future. He says in verse 18, they are enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. 
So whoever they are, they've set themselves against Jesus, and that means they're on a dangerous path that will lead to their ruin. In verse 20, he tells about the very different future expectation for believers. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes, Paul tells us, He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of His glory. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that when Jesus comes back, He's going to take these frail, humble bodies that we have in the present, and He's going to put them through a process of transformation such that they become glorious bodies, still physical, but transformed, different, glorious. Notice what Paul's done. He has defined the group's identity in terms of what he expects to happen in the future. You've got one group on the outside that's on a path to destruction in contrast to another group, insiders, who will not be destroyed. On the contrary, their bodies will be made whole, incorruptible, and immortal. That's the difference between the two. So hope for resurrection identifies Christians as a group. Resurrection hope defines our identity. Another passage is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Paul writes to the Thessalonians to comfort them after some in the congregation have died. And he distinguishes between two different kinds of grief. He says, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. So we might say there's hopeless grief on the one hand in contrast to grief experienced in the midst of hope on the other. What's the difference? For Paul, the difference is resurrection. Because he proceeds in the rest of that passage to instruct the recipients that when Jesus returns, the bodies of the dead in Christ will be raised from the grave and believers will meet them. Death does not have the final word. Resurrection has the final word. Life wins. And that means grief is wrapped up with hope. That specific hope for future bodily resurrection functions to distinguish believers from unbelievers. And that means resurrection, again, is a defining feature of Christian identity. In this case, it even impacts our emotional experience of grief. So what does all that have to do with anything? What does it have to do with the way I engage in ministry, the way I shepherd the people Christ has entrusted to my pastoral care? Well, a lot. Because it gives us, it gives me, it gives the church a framework for thinking and speaking about Christian ethics and practice and holiness. People who study group identity and the formation of group identity tell us that when we have this future vision of ourselves as members of certain groups, then we tend to behave in ways that align with or correspond to that hoped-for identity. For example, when I was in college, I began the process of ministry candidacy. I had this vision of myself, my future self, as a member of the group of people called preachers. And that motivated me to behave in ways that would be, bring that anticipated identity into reality. This works its way out in different levels of behavior. So on one very serious level, I did the hard work required by my denomination to become ordained. On a somewhat less serious level, there were times before I was a pastor, maybe I dressed like I thought a pastor ought to dress. And that vision of myself as a future member of a certain group, clergy, preachers, formed a part of my identity. And that identity, vision of my future self, impacted my behavior in the present. Well, when we look at Paul, his ethical expectations often correspond explicitly to his hope for future bodily resurrection. That distinctive hope for resurrection impacts his expectations for the way believers use their bodies right now. That future identity is as resurrected persons in the context, is the context in which ethics are forged. You get a clear sense of this in Romans 6 where Paul asks that famous question, Shall we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And his answer emphatically is no, 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 
Never. We've been joined to Christ in His death, and that means we have hope that we will be raised from the dead, just like Jesus. That means our present life in mortal bodies ought to stand in continuity with our future life in resurrected immortal bodies. His argument basically says, since your body will be raised by virtue of union with Christ, do not let sin exercise lordship in your bodies now. Don't use the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness. Instead, use them as instruments for righteousness. Use your body in a way that embodies your future identity. So Paul has this vision of Christian life that's not characterized by sin. And that is a way of embodying in the present the future identity as a member of the resurrected people of God. Or to use the language he uses at the end of Romans 6, sanctification now stands in continuity with resurrection later. The life of holiness in the present is intended to embody the beauty of resurrected bodies in the future. So as a pastor, I want to lead the church in living into their resurrection-oriented identity. I want to shepherd the people of God to become their future selves. That means we ask questions like this. Does the way I use my tongue to speak embody the beauty of the future identity? Does my marriage embody the beauty of the future resurrection identity? Do my daily habits, my professional life, my recreational life, all these aspects of my life, do they stand in continuity with my resurrection-oriented identity? The way I use my resources, time, energy, money. Is bodily life now, in the present, increasingly marked by holiness that accurately magnifies the future glory of the resurrected identity of the people of God? Discipleship is about seeing that future identity become our daily reality.